You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. And this week, we have got my favourite West Australian planning professional in the room. It is Ross Burnett, Chief of Urban Planning and Development at the Town of Mosman Park, back in the studio for a really candid, fresh conversation about how we improve the planning system in Western Australia. It's been a topic for a while. It's become really heated and a hot topic recently. How do we improve our red tapes planning system? How do we overhaul it? All these ideas that have come through, your median density code sitting there waiting in the wings. How do we make it even better than that? So I thought we would get the person I respect most in the local government space in planning, and that's Ross Burnett. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Thank you, Trent. Appreciate uh, coming back to the show. I thought we'd go five topics to make it really simple for everyone to follow, including myself, with regards to that hit list. So thanks a lot. You've done a little bit of research and a bit of thinking yourself before coming in. I think we go straight into it. How do we improve our West Australian planning system from a baseline practical situation? We're not going to talk fluff about how this policy, that policy, we're going to get right down to the nuts and bolts. So number one, we need to attract and retain good progressive thinking local government planners. Jeez, that's the crux of it, isn't it? How do we get better people in the space? It really is, Trent. I think really the local government planner is at the coalface of the community's expectations, but also at the coalface of a lot of the controversial planning issues that we see playing out. It really is important that we do control the narrative so that planners in high-risk local governments in particular are not disparaged, blamed or accused of conflicts of interest where there is no basis for such claims. We do see a lot of that going on at the moment, particularly in some areas of of Perth. It's pretty outrageous to think that anyone in the planning system uh, from an officer level all the way up to principal would be engaging anything that anyone could say is nefarious or corrupt or anything. I guess I can't imagine it. I'm on the coalface of it every day as a developer. And whilst I can get very frustrated with the lack of practical, pragmatic thinking with a lot of planning officers in local government, I still would never never go as far as getting close to say that there's anything nefarious happening. They're doing their job the best they can. There's a lot of fear, I think, behind the decision-making they're doing, fear fear for their job. But I would never consider that there's an issue around their integrity or their value system. And that goes to the core of how we not only attract good people but retain good people. I've seen so many good planners start in the industry, cop the pressure, cop the crap from developers or from local government councillors or from neighbours or from constituents, and then last two, three years, and they're straight out into industry as a planning consultant. Look, I've started off at the city of Fremantle back 20-something years ago. I worked my way into doing my own private consulting, but 12 years later, I returned back to local government because that's where you can make a difference as a planner. You really can shape those communities and really form really good policies and and frameworks to have lasting effects. So it's really important that we do keep local government planners retained, but also that they're not in the firing line of those particular community members. They work within a code of conduct. Many of them are members of PEER, which has an ethics code. Those people need to be supported and they need to be encouraged to continue on working in local government. Can you understand from an industry point of view, whether it's developers or it's councillors or it's constituents, why 
there would be so much pressure or frustration with certain local governments and within those those local governments, certain planning offices. Do you, you see it yourself and scratch your head sometimes as the difference in either quality or decision-making criteria that just makes it so frustrating and therefore the pressure piles on all the time? Yeah, look, there's definitely different streams of thinking with relation to how offices operate. From my perspective, I've gone through starting off as a local government planner and then spent quite a number of years on the other side of the fence, gaining that commercial acumen and understanding what it means to have a a, a three-month delay, what that means to the bottom line of a Mm. project. I've found that that really does help me as a local government leader to really understand that unnecessary red tape or bureaucracy has can a massive have, impact. Absolutely. And you know, empathy is what you said you're, you're talking to there is empathy for those greedy developers, for example. Because I think we're always trying to make a difference. We're always trying to make an impact in our society, provide better housing, provide better services, provide warehouses, whatever it is we're trying to do. All of us are all trying to be our best form and make an impact. Do you think one of the factors might be also maybe a lack of opportunity for progression? Do you see that as being a reason people move out of local government? Is it money? Is it an ability to make an impact? Are there enough opportunities? We obviously have a new generation of young planners coming through. There's an appetite to be doing more exciting and innovative type work. And I guess in local government, particularly in a small local government like where I work at at Town of Mossman Park, there may be a perception that there's limits in terms of what you can learn and what you can actually achieve. But in our small local government, we're progressing a major strategic planning reform through that particular area. And they really can have that impact. It's just that the risks that are involved in having their names disparaged through the media or being targeted by particular groups accused of corruption or doing the wrong thing, it really doesn't make it that attractive for them to stay. Mm. If you're in planning, you're not you're probably not doing it for the money, right? There are other jobs you could be doing in property that would pay more, for starters, if you love property. But more to the point, you don't do any job to come to work every day feeling like there's a target on your back, whether it's from the councillors or from developers or from constituents. I guess I really do empathise, whilst a lot of planning officers do frustrate me, just as many that I am very impressed with. It's not a job that I think I could put up with every day. There's just there's a lot of pressure timeframes understaffed like the rest of us how do we improve it we can bring up the the problems but how do we actually solve this problem of attracting and retaining bringing people out of practice and back into local government or keeping the good ones in local government so that one day they've got your position for example i think that is the core of the challenge i don't particularly have the answer all i can say is that really to retain the right staff it is about encouraging and building those particular planning offices to grow and to keep learning and to see them really flourish in terms of building their skills, building skills, I guess, in things like community engagement, becoming leaders themselves, and maybe they will move and grow into other positions at state or even in the private sector, but at least they have that foundation of understanding what a community expects, what it is to do the real nitty-gritty of what planning officers do. But at the end of the day, it really is hard to keep them there because it is thankless in many ways. You know, they do have to take a lot of um, hits. Mm, Move Uh, on to the next project. Is it a culture in local planning where it's a gatekeeper situation? Or more to the point, is it possible to get to a culture where 
as a public servant, the planning officer is part of the developer's team nearly. Yes, there has to be a framework that has to be kept to, but when that application is lodged and received, the planning officer is a part of the team that helps get that to a compliant or acceptable level that can be approved rather than a gatekeeper situation where whether it's approved or not, not my problem, I'm going to just process an application in a statutory time frame. Yeah, look, and it is... It it's going to be a cultural issue from the lo- local side as well. It needs to start being more inclusive about where we're all trying to go together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it's it's not a gatekeeper kind, kind of situation. It's a collaboration. The problem that we have is some local governments, they require, for example, any planning officer or, or director or whoever to register any meeting they have with developers. So it becomes an oversight issue from, I guess, the community's perspective and also the council. So the eyes and the spotlight are on the planning department to make sure that they're not colluding mm. or perception of colluding. And there's fear again from the local government side. When did it get to a point where cooperating and, and collaborating with applicants was colluding? Where did it get to a point where the, you had to protect yourself from there being a question? Where rather, it should be, why aren't you collaborating with developers? We need this Woolworths here that where no other local shops are. We need some medium or low, high density here. Why aren't you collaborating with these developers to incentivize them? Instead, it's the other question of, is anything shifty going on here right now? You know, is, uh, how did you get that through, for example? Why do you approve that? I guess it's a question of, who's paying you and who you represent. Yeah. So there's perception that if you are paid by the local government and the local government is funded by ratepayers, then your interests lie with the ratepayers. And if they don't like a particular outcome, mm. then they're looking at you as the planning department or the chief as I am. Why didn't you do something more or why didn't you advocate for us in a better way? Is a wholesome career progression for a planning officer one that includes time in industry? Do you need it to be the best planning officer in WA? I always say that the best planning officers are those who are particularly well-versed in local government because they have seen it from the community's perspective or at that local level. If they start off, for example, in state government, they haven't had that grassroots local government experience. I think that's a missing element. Not saying that they're they're not as qualified or that they're not as prominent, but I think having that local government experience can also help in the private sector. So say if you had a planner joining a, a development team as a development manager or something like that, having that planning experience I think would really help a project to get it from A to Z. Let's move to the second point. Sure. We need consistent delegation powers across all local governments. What does that mean particularly? So what you'll find, Trent, is that each local government has its own list or instrument of delegation. And there's a lot of local governments that require a delegation to council where there are a number of objections to a a development application. Where politics can get involved. Yeah, or there's uh, an ability within a delegation for a council to call up an application. But generally, what happens is if there's a certain number of objections, that's the trigger. Uh, Could that trigger be one? Yes, so it it is in, in many of the western suburbs councils, for example. And that means that just one person with a valid objection, and there's obviously parameters around that, means that the application ends up in the political space. What about if it's not fully compliant? Are there situations where some city planning teams 
have an ability to use delegation over and above XYZ because it generally fits within guidelines and others have no delegation abilities if one thing doesn't comply like some setback, for example? That's right. So the different instruments delegation, different local governments will prescribe what it is that can be delegated down through the CEO, down to the director, etc., and, and so on and so forth. What's an example? Give us one that you see all the time that really is, is a problem that should be sorted straight away. Having one objection to any DA does cause problems because if it's, say, for example, a setback variation, the valid objection of bulk and scale is often used and that is valid. So that then triggers applications with maybe half a metre or less variance to a side setback needing a council approval, which can, you know, it, it takes a lot of time, energy and resources on both sides, mm. the local government and the applicant money. to pull that together and money. And then the second it comes out of local government planning hands, which should be objective, go straight into a subjective council that can recognise maybe a really great building or development and from political sways just go, no, it's not happening. Absolutely. And even land use. So say, for example, in some local governments, display home is a use not listed. The applicant tries to get an approval. It's discretionary. So the local government says, no, we don't want, we don't want display homes in our suburb. That ends up being refused. That ends up also then in the SAT. And that's tying up resources at mm. that level as well. Which is ridiculous. When you think about display homes, they're normally the nicest, most well-appointed homes that anyone would build. Why wouldn't you want a display home in, of all types of buildings in your suburb? doesn't make sense to me at all. No, of course. Me, me neither. So let's look at the solution. What do you think should be a blanket delegation level across councils where you think that's fair and reasonable? Look, I think if there's, say, three or four or maybe five objections that are valid, then that would make sense. And I guess it would make sense across different types of development applications. So a standardised scale of compliance with a delegation across local governments would make sense where every rule for each local government is consistent and clear. So applicants can say, okay, well, I know that in this particular local government, I'm not going to have to compromise on a setback or a courtyard size or something like that. And I know that if I do the same thing in Kalamunda, I'm going to get the same response as Joondalup. And I look at that and I would challenge your views on four or five objections because I, I see a number of cities a number of cities where there could be 17, 20 objections and still it isn't delegated or it isn't referred up to the political council. A director stands behind their decision because they should have been and have been given the power to make a decision regardless of whether there's 100 objections or not. If there is 100 objections, it's very possible there's a problem with the place and it will get refused. But I would have thought that you guys have been employed based on your experience. And this is a real issue that has been brought up by John Kerry with regards to qualifications of councillors. Most of the decisions they make these days are planning decisions and have absolutely zero planning qualifications. So when it becomes super heated, a certain development application, suddenly the best thing to do is take it out of the professional's hands and put them in councillors' hands who... One guy might be a doctor. Nothing to do with planning. Absolutely. How does that make sense? It doesn't. And I believe that it comes down to a level of trust. So it, it comes down to the relationship between an administration and a council and how well the CEO has advocated that particular level of trust. If they don't trust the decisions that are being made at delegation, then they lift that level of delegation where the council gets more and more involved. And I would say that that's a real issue in the Western suburbs. It's pretty obvious that when we talk about the level of involvement and dabbling the councillors have, it gets worse the closer you get 
to the ocean. And you might not have a, much of a comment on that given uh, your space, but that's my view is that um, clearly something needs to be done at a state level to standardize how involved councils can be at certain points in time. And then we don't have any discussion about it anymore. It just is the rule book. There is one rule book and there aren't 30 rule books for us all to figure out. Let's move to number three. We need to remove some of the archaic planning controls from the early 90s. This is a loaded one, Ross. So many planning controls are from the early 90s that have served us well enough over time. They, they might be broken, but they still work. Where are you going with this? I've started advocating for some changes, particularly around the R codes volume one, which is the low density code. All right, let's just get everyone on the same page. Mum and dad's all the way up to the planning minister. Give us a good example of what you mean by this. This is this is our R codes, right? This is the R codes. This is the nuts and bolts. This is the R2 up to the R25. Yeah. So the, the medium density code which is coming is going to do R30 to R80, I believe. So, yep. so you're saying there could be a better way to do it than density based on land parcels. Absolutely. There's a number of examples from around the world, but really the form-based code system is where I'm going with this. It involves a performance-based model to deal with built form rather than relying on arbitrary site area or plot ratio calculations. So really what I think would be an easy win just to get that started would be to amend table one of the R codes and remove the minimum site area per dwelling for development. You could keep it for subdivision, but for development, it should be based on establishing a building envelope and how the building actually interacts with the street. What's inside it doesn't necessarily dictate whether or not it should be appropriate or not. So let's use an example. I've got a 900 square meter site and I've got a house behind a house situation, right? I've got a old house at the front and we're leaving it as is to a reno and then there's a driveway to the back 400 and something square meters you're suggesting that we shouldn't simply be stuck within saying well we can only put one house there mm. what if you could put two units within the size of one house is that what you're saying exactly so really the form and function of the site instead of it being a 250 square meter four by one, two with an alfresco yep, yeah your typical rear house in bassendine or morley or, or yoke wherever yep. that actually could house two internal units two bedroom two bathroom for example mm. and what the what would the harm be in that let's talk about what would the harm be right so Still a similar roof space or the same roof space. Still have the same land parcel. We've probably still got similar amount of cars, maybe mm. a slightly more cars. I would have thought maybe if there's two families maybe living there. one extra. Maybe yeah. a little bit more on the, on the traffic side. So that might be something we work through. Noise would be similar enough, right? Overshadowing wouldn't make a difference because the property is still the same. What would the downside be? I guess you'd have an extra letterbox at the front. <laughs> so, and this, this you, know, look, you make a really good point. It's just... Can we develop, and this is the crux of most rules and laws and systems, can we develop a system, a, a framework that is easily enough understood so that developers, builders, and planning professionals can understand what can and can't be fit in there? What you're essentially alluding to is allowing a dual-key situation when formalizing it rather than having people trying to sneak in two kitchen houses with a door that they're going to close. Yeah, look, and I think there's examples, say, in like California where they have a palette of different building types. You think of like the Melrose Place type situation. It's courtyard group dwellings. You know, they all face in on each other. They have four-pack, two-story masonettes. There's a number of different built form mechanisms. Why don't we, we see those built forms in Perth? Why is it so homogenous? It's because of the controls that we've set up, particularly in the 1990s with, uh, with the R-Codes Volume 1. It's very much based on size 
site area. It's not really focusing in on what the buildings are and the building typologies. And that's where we get caught up a lot in, again, with planning offices focusing on the controls themselves and not actually stepping back and thinking about what a good outcome could look like and whether just because it doesn't fit the control, whether it's not still a great amenity and great development of diversity. Imagine in a place like Netherlands, for example, right? Not that that any of that could have been subdivided at any point in time up until three years ago. But imagine if it could have, the older people who could live in conjoined essentially duplexes at a rear or a front of a property. What happened to the duplex, by the way, Ross? The duplexes were built in the 60s, 70s, 80s. They probably lost, you know, they're not the highest value property. People don't seem to love the amenity of them. But why don't we see any of them being built anymore? Is it just because people prefer the land base, owning their own patch of land? A lot of those old duplexes from the 60s and 70s are sitting on quite large pieces of land. One of the uh, duplexes I grew up in was in Riverton. And my half was the two-story duplex half, and it was on 1,300 square metres with the, with the one next door. Eventually, I think maybe five years ago, it got rezoned to R30, and then all of a sudden it's demolished, and now there's five or six townhouses on it. Mm. But that type of living today is, I guess, seen as a little bit inferior. You've it got is, attached yeah. walls and... Yeah. You know, you don't have your own, in many cases, your own separate portion of title. It's on the on the old purple titles and built strata. You're suggesting that within our low density framework, we can, is it creating a median density within the low low density situation? Is that what we, we should be able to have flexibility to do? Low density from a land perspective, but higher density from a built form perspective, which should unlock a lot of lower cost properties for people to live in? Look, I think it comes down to a housing affordability crisis and a rental crisis that we've, we're dealing with at the moment. And we need to start thinking a little bit more innovatively from a planning perspective as to how we can unlock mm. some opportunities or some diversity. And it's not all just about train stations and activity centres and corridors. And land. And land. We've got opportunities within our, um, our middle ring with the R20s and R25s that we can have this, the extra one dwelling in a two or three unit uh, yeah, scenario. Yeah, it, it confuses the hell out of me that maybe you might have some stats on this, but half of all properties in Perth are R20 or R25. Is that, it's probably that, right? And so many of them, if there are 20 or 820 square meters or something like that, and we can't have any extra density on there. No, and you look at our new suburbs on the fringe, you know, the, the depths of uh, Quinana, Wanneroo, those sorts of areas, the base density codes now are 30. So you're getting your, your small 200, 300 square meter blocks as a standard. Mm. You know, we don't have that in the middle ring. Isn't that a paradox right there that the higher density should be in the middle ring and the lower density should be out in these newer developments or at the very least they should be equal. You shouldn't have these chasms of density 10 kilometers from the city it does my head in that you would go high density median density low density and back up to high density again because economically it's the only way to make land development work these days absolutely i agree there's a term called transecting and it's supposed to go like a transition of density from your center or your corridor and then transitioning out as you go further away from that high density node or corridor so what it means is you should have all the concentration, Stirling Highway, for example, and then as you get to the river, it should be the lowest form of density. And in between, it should be the middle ground. So I'm not sure, in terms of metropolitan planning, we're not really seeing it play out that way. We're seeing much higher density on these fringe suburbs now, but they're still concentrating the density around the, the transit and the, and the activity centres. Bit of a mismatch. We need to do something in the middle ring. 
you know, there's so many suburbs that I can think of. In, you know, for example, in the north, it would be your Dianellas, your Careens, your Gwellups, Duncraigs for the most part. Most of the city of Joondalup, for example, they're all R20 with a little bit of R40 and the opportunity, the backyards there. And this, no one's forcing this development. It's only, it only happens at the curve of opportunity, right? If someone doesn't want to develop their house, no one's ever going to make them. But the amount of inquiry I get from people in, I don't know, East Craigie, who have got 800 square meters on an R20 site, see the guy 500 meters away subdivide their property west of Eddystone Ave, but he can't because he's R20 and 800 square meters. Perfectly big enough backyard to do it, just won't get an approval for it. Whose amenity is reduced because he would have put a house at the back of his on the east side of Craigie, whereas five kilometres further out in Tapping, they've got three houses on that block. Exactly. Insanity, man. And as long as they're putting the trees in and, and, and retaining some of the old trees and maintaining that amenity that's still there, then why not? Let's look at number four. And this one's very specific to the local governments, right? But again, an opportunity to help with the outcomes from statutory timeframes. I see a lot more deferrals these days, Ross, than I used to. It frustrates the hell out of me. Any opportunity to defer a, a DA or a subdivision application, the cities will take it. Resource sharing, combining smaller local government planning departments. We see local governments that share libraries. Why can't we do it with planning teams? And this does come from uh, Minister Kerry in terms of his local government reforms is really to to seek better resource sharing. And, and it's done well in the, in the local governments in the country where they really don't have a choice or they can't resource particular roles. What we're finding now, even in Mossman Park, it's been three rounds of trying to get a planning officer. Uh, I've seen you advertise on LinkedIn often. We and I would have thought people would be pretty keen to work in a place like Mosley Park. It's a pretty nice part of the world. It's a lovely place. You come to our office, you can look down the river. A and good boss. A good boss. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's just really, really difficult to, to attract. Again, it might be come down to that first, that first point we're talking about, retaining good and, ret- and attracting good progressive local government th- planners. It's, it's really hard. Do you reckon there are people in the town of Cottesloe or Pepe Grove who are twiddling their thumbs or would have at least a bit of space to help you guys out? Look, I, I don't think that Cottesloe, with the number of SDAU applications, are twiddling <laughs> their thumbs. Yeah. Um, but I think there's definitely efficiencies. And look, we're not heading towards amalgamation. so well, I don't think that's going to happen. No. So we're looking at, um, I guess, and I haven't progressed any sort of discussions on this, but the idea of combining smaller local governments in terms of uh, their planning departments, or it could be their health services or building departments to... Well, you already do that, don't you? We do, and uh, through the West Rock Regional kind of conglomerate. That's a cool acronym. Who thought of that one? That's oh, a, yeah, it's a good one. You tested me now. I can't remember <laughs> what it actually stands for. But you for. share building teams, right? Yeah, look, so the city of Netherlands leads an initiative where they offer services uh, for a fee to the smaller local governments like Claremont, Cottesloe, for building services and compliance. That particular initiative I've been pushing to also include environmental health and planning. There's just efficient... Helps to standardise as well. Isn't that good that even if the local governments are still separated, you start to get standardised decision-making as well? Well, you should. Um, the issue there is obviously different politics in each yeah. of the Western suburbs they're, councils. They're still having to work against different policies, yeah. That's right. But, but if you had yeah. all these planning officers sharing information, sharing ideas, at some point, surely you'd have a homogenization of planning policies too because they're coming together with planning summits, you know, having a conversation about whilst we are separate planning teams, how about we start to standardize our outcomes a little bit more so that it is more understandable. And not only that, planning 
officers might move, be able to move around a bit more freely, second each other and those sort of things, learn from each other. Yeah, look, and I think that's also another thing that we are looking at, particularly through the Local Government Planners Association, is is that resource sharing and being able to second planners and attract different thinking mm. and really get some, some good ideas happening and some consistency. Well, I think that's something that should definitely be pushed because uh, we all obviously have issues with good staff at the moment. Let's look at number five, transparency in the exercise of and use of discretion by decision makers. This is another loaded gun, mate. Like discretion is huge these days when we have such a tough framework to work with as developers, for example. It's such an efficient market as well that, you know, a little secret from our side is it's nearly not profitable to develop something within the framework. Like you, you have to bet on discretion around the framework for that extra bit of plot ratio or that extra bit of height or that extra floor or that extra apartment or whatever it is. Otherwise, it just wouldn't have worked. And that's how hard it is these days. I don't think planners recognize just how unworkable the system is for us developers when it comes to the black and white. That's why you never see a fully compliant development these days because it doesn't work. It's not. If it worked, we'd just do that. It'd be a lot easier for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, with that sort of profitability conversation, the local governments are now becoming more sophisticated in their community benefits uh, for contributions. Uh, well, programs. I wouldn't say uh, sophisticated. I would say more opportunistic. That's definitely one, one perspective, yeah. yes. So, I mean, that particular aspect I'm seeing emerging and it's happening at Mosman Park, I'm seeing it at Claremont. More cost. More cost. So, really, what we're talking about here is the transparency of the use of that discretion, but I guess the second issue to that is the use of that discretion is now going to come with a bit of a sting. Mm. And we've had that conversation about POS contributions in the past. So what I'm looking at here really, and this is coming up through planning reform at the department, is likely you know five or ten principles for which decision makers can explain the use of that discretion. It could be a JDAP, it could be SDAU, it could be a council or even a director or a planning officer. What is it that consists of the reasoning for a decision to be? So qualitative criteria or guidelines to allow planners, whatever level they're at, to make pragmatic, rational decisions that sit slightly outside of frameworks because frameworks can never be perfect. As you've just explained and gone through with volume one, there is always ways to improve around. There's always individual situations. There's always holistic outcomes that you're never going to be able to capture properly in a framework, right? But if you can have guidelines that sit around that framework that allows for discretion to make holistically positive outcomes from planning level all the way up to SDAU, state level, why not empower these people to give them a bit more confidence? Because it seems like even the JDAP is getting more and more political because they're scared as well. They're scared they're going to get sued at the Supreme Court. There is no respect for that level anymore. And even from a, from a constituent point of view, we have these levels of decision-making to make non-political decisions, but then you can still have a local community body who wants to take the state to the Supreme Court because of a decision that we've empowered this person to make. If I was in that person's position, I'd be pretty scared to go and use discretion for positive outcomes as well. Yeah, look, and as a local government planner and, and uh, leader, if there is something that's controversial and you know that the community doesn't like it, it makes it very difficult to put up a recommendation that's unpopular. Mm. 
So to be able to have some parameters in which to explain the reasons why or to rationalize it, I guess that's good for transparency, but also explaining to a community why you've made that recommendation. It's good the SDAU exists, but I don't think we should have had to have had it. The SDAU is a a band-aid or a response to local governments not being empowered to make good decisions in the first place. Otherwise, why spend the extra state resources making the decision that we all know should have been made anyway, right? And imagine if you could empower local governments, people at your level who are critical decision makers to go, yeah, I know that XYZ doesn't like the decision, but because of these reasons, I'm empowered to make this decision because it's for the better of the community going forward. We need density, we need variability in housing type. And I'm sorry, Stephen, next door, but you're gonna have a little bit of overshadowing and there's gonna be a lot more people living next year. It's just the way we're going. Without being scared, you're gonna lose your job. Yeah, and it, it certainly can be that threat. You know, I've been in situations where I've had to make hard recommendations that have been unpopular, which has resulted in a target on my back. And it's not a great feeling and, and it really doesn't foster, I guess, uh, or encourage wanting to stay in a local government mm. long term. So something something has to change. And I guess this is at least one planning reform measure that should help those difficult uh, situations. Well, what it will also do is help keep, help keep things out of SAT. I mean, SAT is extremely time-consuming, extremely expensive. A lot of opponents to progress and development were like that because it's a deterrent for developers, for example, for pushing the boundaries on things. SAT's so expensive and so timely that sometimes you just don't bother. But if it's something that's for the betterment of society or it's, it's you know, in a small way just a good project, there should be ways for pragmatic leaders within a local government to stand up, not be scared of losing their job, not be scared of a target at the back of the local IGA and make a decision based on, even if it's not within a framework, within a guideline that allows them to be pragmatic and rational in, in a certain situation. Especially when in a place in the western suburbs, for example, these buildings are not 20-year buildings. These are buildings that should be there for 100 years. Look at Europe. Some of these buildings are three, four, five hundred years old. And when we think about our future context versus existing context, the future is hundreds of years. The existing context is probably 10 to 30 years maximum, right? Or zero to 30 years maximum. And yet, when we change an R code, when we upscale an area, we're still hamstrung by looking back in, into the past and not preparing this building for the future, that one day it might be a four-story building and next year it will be 10 stories. Isn't that insane that we, you know, no one has the power to make that decision unless we get to a state level? Absolutely, and there has to be a braveness to it as well because you know, we're looking at three and a half, four million people you know, in the next 20 to 30 years. Where mm. are they going to live at mm. the moment? We can't house the people that are coming in. So really, it, it does require some bravery by those decision makers at the state level and, and minister, I guess, to really start looking at the fundamentals of the planning system. Let's look at childcare, for example, right? We talk about development a lot, built form. Childcare is a perfect example where uh, a lot of constituents, councillors will use the argument of a, of a decreasing in amenity for having a childcare centre next door or down the road from you. When childcare centres are an increase in amenity, they are a public service. Mm. However, people hide behind the idea of reduced amenity when what they really mean is perceived reduced value to their home. Childcare centres are a service we need. They're also the best neighbour you could have because there's no noise after 6pm ever and on weekends. Always very clean. They're never working on their car at 11pm at night on a Friday. (laughs) Yeah, it's a perfect example where nearly every childcare developer in Perth goes through JDAP, 
being the state government service because they know they'll never get it approved at a local government level because of the politics. Not only because they don't have faith in the councillors, but they also don't have faith in the backbone of the local planning team to actually recommend an approval where it should be approved in the first place. Isn't that insane that the majority of applications in the city of Joondalup for childcare have been recommended refusal and the majority of those applications have been voted approved at the JDAP? That, that is very interesting. Right. I think, again, it comes back to that argument of the, the planning officers or whoever's making the recommendation being brave enough mm. to go against the will of the, the community that they're perceived to be paid by and represent. Yeah. It's really, really difficult. But if there's this uh, framework in which we can go, okay, well, we're going to recommend approval for this childcare centre and here's the criteria, the five or ten criteria, here we are. This is this is why we've made this decision. We've weighed up the decision and here's all the elements of it. There you go. In the same way that a JDAP has the discretion to do that, right? Exactly. So passing that discretion back down so we're not clogging up state resources to make just get on with things. When at the end of the day, a good project will get approved at some level. It's just how far do you have to push it up the line and how much money and time do you have to spend to get there? When we talk about the theme of today's conversation is fixing the planning system, that has to be the theme, Right providing more delegation, more decision-making ability to at local levels to actually get on with progress, as long as the decision-makers in the local levels are invested in the project in the first place and don't see themselves as gatekeepers, but rather a part of the team in the first place. Absolutely. It comes down to that collaboration and balancing the needs of the community, but also facilitating a process with the development industry uh, that can see things getting processed within reasonable timeframes and they're not being barriers being put in, in, their, in their way unnecessarily. And this is the, a theme coming out from leaders in the industry, right? We heard from Nathan Blackburn last week. What was his recommendation? Make land development from a structure planning level all the way back years before you even see the dirt turned, much more streamlined, getting more confidence about where the new estate is going to be, where the resource is going to come from, what the costs are going to be so that we can get on with it and provide this critical service. We all talk about a housing shortage, but no one wants to put their hand up and help. No one wants the shortage to be fixed in their backyard. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Go and put 3,000 more lots out past the Anship. We're happy with that. That's not going to serve, solve the problem for us long term. We can't keep doing that. We'll have Cole Dutton on next week from Stockland. I'm very interested to hear what he'll have to say about how we fix the planning space in Perth as well. Ross Manette, Chief of Urban Planning and Development at the Town of Muslim Park. I've really enjoyed this, mate. It's so refreshing to have candid conversations about planning with a local government planner. So thanks for the conversation. Thanks for the work you're doing trying to get Volume 1 upgraded. That's exciting. Hopefully, we can keep refining the planning process, cutting red tape and delivering housing to a state that needs it. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!